Hello everyone, welcome to today's podcast. Today we're going to cover the impact of GMAT scores on uh, McKinsey, Bain, BCG applications and also you know, the other major firms such as uh, Roland Berger, Monitor, Booze and so on. And I must welcome you to this first podcast. We decided to move to podcast for several reasons. Firstly, our hectic travel schedules are making it a bit difficult for us to sit down and write these long um, blog postings that we used to do uh, a few months back. So we decided to move to podcasts. It gives us a chance to capture more. It also gives us a chance to write and capture things as we see it in the field, so-called field reports. So you'll be seeing much more of these. And we expect to answer the bulk of the questions that readers have or to provide feedback on things we see in the field through these podcasts. So let's let's get into GMAT scores and MBA students. So the first question the reader wanted to know is how important is the GMAT score when interviewing with BBM? Does this differ by each of the firms? Well, I think the key thing to remember there is that your GMAT score is one part of your overall application. You know, the firm will look at the schools you went to, what your grade point averages were, where you worked, the stature of the firms where you worked, the kind of work you did, what you accomplished, your extracurricular activities, did you have leadership roles in extracurricular activities, and were they usual or unusual extracurricular activities. So for example, did you build homes for the homeless people in AT by funding your own travel there? Or did you simply do sort of church services in your own um, uh, suburbs? So GMAT scores is one part of the overall application. I would say that if you are applying to a firm that has never met you before. So, for example, if you're a student from Chicago Booth School of Business applying to the Dubai uh, um, office of BCG, you've not engaged with anyone in BCG. They don't know you. The only thing they're going to judge you on is based on your application, and your GMAT score is one part of your application. So, yes, in that case where the firm does not know you very well, it is very important. Does it differ by each of the major firms? Well, of course it does. If you look at the online application systems for, say, BCG, Bain and McKinsey, only Bain and McKinsey ask for your GMAT score online. BCG does not ask for it. They may ask for it during the course of interviews and they may ask for it after you get an offer, but it differs by office. So I think what you have to do is don't just consider whether the importance of GMAT by firm, consider it by region and by office because it differs by region and it differs by office. What we found working with candidates is that the Middle Eastern firms tend to be more open-minded when it comes to GMAT scores. They're considering a more complete package. On the other hand, because they do that, it tends to be very competitive and you get more people migrating to those offices. So to answer the first question, GMAT scores tend to be more important if you don't have a relationship with the firm and the firm therefore cannot judge you on other things beyond your GMAT score and beyond your grades. Does it differ by each of the major firms? Yes. It tends to be far more important at uh, McKinsey and Bain for screening, less important at BCG, and also much more important at firms like Deloitte, AT Kearney, Booze, and so on. But again, by region it differs. At one BCG office it may be far more important than the others, and I think you need to consider this. What type of scores do they expect? You know, 700 plus, is it more likely to be 720 or higher these days? Now, this is an interesting thing. These are true stories that I'm going to tell you. I know of students who went to elite schools, you know, top 10 in their country and top 10 worldwide, who got scores 610, 630, 650. They got offers at the major firms. In fact, firstly, they got interviews. And secondly, they got offers while their colleagues who scored 760, 720 and above did not get offers. So, a GMAT score helps you get the interview, right? 
But whether or not you get the offer after you get the interview is totally dependent on how you do in the interview. So let's focus on getting the interview because that's where the GMAT score counts for the most. As I mentioned earlier, if you network well, you've got a good presence, you communicate well, then you will definitely have a better chance of getting an interview versus someone who has never communicated and networked with the office where they're applying. The office does not know them. No one's expecting your application. No one knows who you are. And there's no one who can defend you when there's only five people who can do interviews and they can only interview 20 people. And how do you make that shortlist of 20 people? So, the, the, a higher score is obviously better, right? If you get a very high score, it obviously counts very well. But other parts of your application can kill you. For example, we tend to work a lot with Indian graduates, you know, graduates who studied at the IIMs, IITs, and so on, who have very, score, very high GMAT scores. But on the other hand, other parts of the application are very weak. They're very bad at networking. I'm generalizing, yeah, but I'm talking about just this one segment. We have other segments that are also equally bad at networking. But we find that foreigners in a country tend to be worse at networking than locals. And unfortunately, we work most with U.S. students, so the largest immigrant population of professionals happens to be Indians. And we find they tend to be weaker at networking. We also find that this segment also happens to be weaker at extracurricular activities because it's not part of the culture when you're growing up where you have to do these things. So when you come to the U.S. market and you're being measured on, on a scale that you were not brought up to be measured on, it's very difficult to make the adjustment. So GMAT high GMAT scores help you, but high GMAT scores are not an entry in. So for example, if you get 720, it's good. It's going to help you. It's not going to raise a red flag. If you get a lower score around 650, it is a problem, but you can manage yourself out of it through how you connect to people, how you present yourself, how you communicate. It's the overall package, right? You know, it, that's very important. So a high score is good. A low score is not, a, is not an automatic disqualifier. It requires more work. But you have to be cognizant of the fact that it requires more work. The candidate then goes on to ask, you know, he's heard that some firms break up scores. And he would like to know if this is true and what they look for in each score. It is true, firms do break up scores. I mean, if you do better on the quantitative side, it's obviously better. I mean, if you, for example, if you've got 650 overall, which is something like the 75th percentile, I think. But if you scored in the 95th percentile on the quantitative side, it obviously looks better for you, right? But on the other hand, if you did that well and you got the interview and you're still bad in communication, then it's not going to work to your advantage. So, to answer this question clearly, firms do look at the breakout. That's why they ask for the breakout. You do look to be a stronger candidate on paper, and be aware, I did say on paper, if you have a stronger quantitative score, than if you have a higher you know, um, qualitative score or verbal or whatever it's called these days. The point here is that quantitative scores look good on paper. It's very hard to evaluate communication scores on paper because the GMAT is a written test and communication is more than writing. So while you may have a higher quantitative score that makes you look good, even though if you had a lower overall GMAT score, it's important to realize that while that will get you the interview, they are still going to test your communication skills independent of your GMAT score. So what that means is that they can look at your quantitative score in GMAT and have a fairly good understanding that you're quantitative, but they cannot look at you having a 6.0 for your AWA and saying that you communicate well. It's impossible to do that. So that is why they look at the quantitative side. It's easier to test on paper. Then finally, the final question he asks is that um, he's heard that some MBA programs uh, and uh, you know some graduates tend to be more proactive meaning that they um, reach out to candidates early on in the recruitment process to see um, 
you know, if they would attend dinners to get to know them better. And I'm sure you've going through this in your schools at Harvard, INSEAD, and so on, where the firms come and invite you to dinners and so on. And you wanted to know if the GMAT is used to make this short list. Well, of course it is. I mean, I'm not going to lie and say it's not. It is used to make the short list. But it isn't the greatest short list in the world. And to be honest, if you had to look at the correlation between people who got invited for the interviews and people who actually got invited for the dinners and people who got invited for uh, who got offers there's a very small correlation so when firms look at your application to invite you for the dinner it's usually before they've seen your application to the firm all they look at when they invite you for those dinners and you know meet and drink and cocktail sessions is they've looked at your grades and they've seen your brief profile that you've entered into sort of the Harvard um, in Seattle IV system or whatever it is and then once they look at their profile, they invite you for the shortlist dinner. But the shortlist dinner usually happens before you submitted your application for some firms. In other firms, it happens after you submitted your application, right? Now, you have to think very carefully here. If they are inviting you for, your, for their dinner before you've submitted your application to the firm, then they're not seeing your GMAT score. If they're inviting you for a shortlist dinner after you've submitted your application, then you've already submitted your GMAT score, then they're using your GMAT score as a screen. So you have to decide when you know this dinner is taking place to know whether your GMAT score is being used. On the other hand, if you're being invited to a shortlist for an interview, then definitely your GMAT score is being used, right? Because it's part of the application process. So hopefully that answers your question. Just a couple of other points uh, you know, to keep in mind for GMAT scores. I think people are obsessed with GMAT scores, to be honest. I think far too many people are saying, look, if I get a very high GMAT score, it's going to make up for a weak case interview. Let me tell you something. Do you know how many PhDs in math, science, economics, and you know all these fancy technical and analytical subjects do not even get interviews at uh, Bain, BCG, and McKinsey? Do you know how many MIT graduates we work at with who we just reject from the system because... There's no use taking them on as a client because they just cannot communicate. And they have you know, to full 800 on SATs or whatever the total is. They score extremely high on the GMAT, but they're extremely weak at communication. So what I would caution students to do is this. When a student writes to us or when we screen the interview and they tell us something like, Michael or Vijay, my profile is just like my friend's. But he got an interview. It's an, it's, an automatic, it's an automatic warning sign for me because this candidate is not mature enough to realize that every profile is different. And what this candidate is doing is they're actually screening themselves on very superficial criteria. And the reason they're doing it is because they think that what makes you good can be put on paper. And to be honest with you, what makes you a strong candidate that will land a position with McKinsey in the Chicago, New York, you know, Frankfurt, Munich, or Moscow office is not something that can be put on paper. It's very important you understand that. That is why firms ask for a cover letter and a resume. If it was just GMAT scores, GPAs, and a few bullet points at what you did at KKR or Goldman Sachs if you're a transitioning candidate, then yes, a resume is enough to land you an interview. But obviously, it's not enough. That is why firms ask for essays, and they ask for <coughs> excuse me, cover letters. The key thing you have to understand here is that these little data points, while they help improve your profile, they are not enough to complete your profile. And candidates who are obsessed with GPAs and GMAT scores, they do so 
at the expense of important aspects like the way you speak, the way you talk, the way you act, the way you dress, the way you communicate, the confidence you inspire in your interviewer, the way you build relationships, the way you network, and those are very important aspects. And what I would caution students and aspiring consultants is do not be obsessed about the GMAT. Okay, so you know, if you get 600, it's going to be a problem. And to be honest, we've never placed anyone with a score of 600. If you get 610, it's going to be very hard. Again, we've placed people with 610, but it's hard. It's not something that we're advertising out here to, you know, so that people just write to us and say, I got 610, you know, I think I have a shot. It's very difficult. 650 is also difficult. But 650 is manageable. 630 is manageable. Anything below that becomes unmanageable. It takes a lot of work from the candidate, a lot of work. So while your data points like GMAT, GPA, and so on help you avoid red flags, they don't get you the offer. And what I would, advo I would caution candidates is that while they focus on GMAT and GPA, they need to build other skills. You know, for example, one of, the tr one of the techniques we use with candidates is we just ask them to talk about a topic, something they don't know anything about. Just tell me about a topic. We're not interested in whether they know the topic. We don't care if they know the topic. In fact, we don't even we couldn't even assess if they knew the topic because we probably don't know the topic as well. But what we're seeing is how do they handle a situation that they know not how to handle? So, for example, if we had to ask them, tell me what you think about the Colombian presidential elections taking place. Now, a candidate in the United States is hardly going to be able to talk about that, but we want to see how they can manage a communication dialogue to and fro with, a, with someone in a confident manner around a topic they don't know nothing about. That's the ultimate test for us of whether someone is going to have the communication skills to build a presence and build their profile beyond academics and beyond quantitative aspects like the GMAT score. And there's a couple of other things you have to realize about the GMAT score. The GMAT score used to be important a few years back. I mean, you know that for a fact. And if you had a high GMAT score, you'd get into a school and you'd get into a consulting firm. But you know for a fact that consulting firms have introduced you know, problem-solving tests and advanced problem-solving tests. That should automatically tell you that they don't read too much into GMAT scores because they know that people can game the system. I mean, you can get a very high GMAT score and you can be asked to write a problem-solving test. That's very normal. You know, Most officers do that. It's quite common. I know that uh, some firms have started reintroducing that into the UK and Canada. So the point is that even if you get a very high GMAT score, you could still be asked to write a problem-solving test, and that should automatically tell you that the firm is not reading too much into the GMAT score. Finally, let me just talk about networking here, because networking is one way to overcome a low GMAT score, and I, I think they are linked. Even though the interviewer doesn't ask about it, I'm going to assume that he, the, one of these uns, unspoken or unwritten questions he had is, how do I overcome this? You can overcome a weak GMAT score by networking. And let me explain what networking is and what it is not. Networking is not and just remember this very carefully, networking is not when you've arranged five coffee chats and eight phone conversations, you have a discussion, but you build a bad relationship with someone. So imagine you have a coffee chat, you go in there, you're unprepared. You don't have a very good objective of what you're trying to accomplish. The interviewer looks at you and thinks to himself, hmm, this guy actually doesn't have a good reason for joining McKinsey. He's not very clear about management consulting, and he's really not a good speaker. What you've done here is the opposite of networking, and I call it unnet, unworking. If you go into a situation where you've had about eight meetings, coffee chats or phone calls, and you've actually turned someone off towards working and helping you, then that's the opposite of networking. Networking is not the number of people you've connected with. 
It's not the number of people you have met. It's not the number of people you've spoken to. It is the number of people who like you. So when you network, do not assume there's a correlation between the strength of your networking and the number of people you've met. There is no correlation. So when I say that the only way to overcome this is you have to network, I mean that you have to speak to people and get them to like you. That's the first part of networking. The ultimate part of networking is not just if they like you. It's where they get to the point that they're willing to help you, they're willing to look at your resume, they're willing to speak with you, and ultimately they're willing to submit your resume. That is the point of networking, right? So when you tell me you are networking and you know, you're having all these meetings and no one likes you and no one wants to write back, then you're not networking. You're just having meetings. And I think that's a very important distinction that you need to make as you try to either overcome a weak JMAT score or enhance an already strong profile. So just remember this. The point of the first networking session is to get the second networking session. And I always tell candidates, don't go in there asking ridiculous sessions. Don't go in there you know, trying to show how smart you are. Go in there trying to get the person you are speaking to to think, hey, this is a nice person. Their head's screwed on straight. They're professional. They're polished. They know what they want. I'd want to work with them. If you can accomplish that in a network se networking session, then you are networking. Anything else you do is not networking. It's actually damaging your chances because people do speak. I mean, we see it all the time. A lot of our candidates, you know, allow us, give us a view, uh, access to their emails and allow us to watch their emails in terms of, you know, flow of what's happening and so on. And for example, someone will write to five people in the McKinsey Chicago office. The fifth person will come back and say, I know you're speaking to my colleagues, you know, uh, but if you have anything else you want to talk about, feel free to contact me. Other people say, I know you're speaking to my colleagues, so I'm going to, you know, assume that everything's covered and, you know, they're not going to tell me, every they're not going to tell, I'm not going to tell you anything different. So you can also read a lot into that. I mean, people are obviously speaking. Offices are small. People are talking. They see a good candidate. They talk in the office and say, hey, I met this really great candidate on the weekend. You know, they've got an unusual profile. We definitely need to you know, look at them for recruitment. On the other hand, if they meet a bad candidate, you become the, the joke of the day on Monday morning. I mean, I know an actual story whereby a candidate went in for a coffee chat with me when I was still in consulting. And I brought along another colleague because I thought, you know, this candidate had a very good profile, so let's sort of meet two people, kill two birds with one stone so we can you know, compare notes. And we started talking to this colleague, and it was um, in in a country at that time that in a strong emerging market, and we, we sort of, you know, we were having a chat about, you know, what the person did on the weekend, and they said they went shopping, um, and we started talking, you know, about the number of stores, and, you know, how the market's changing, and so this person said something quite ridiculous to us. They said something like, you know, there must be something like 300 Bulgari stores in the whole of the United States. And it's a bit of a jarring comment. 300 Bulgari stores. Bulgari is one of the most prestigious luxury brands in the world. There is only one Bulgari store in the whole of New York City. New York City, one of the wealthiest cities in the world, is only one Bulgari store. And yet this person is telling me there must be 300 Bulgari stores in the whole of the United States. Irrespective of the other 20 minutes conversation we had with this candidate... I didn't really move beyond that comment, to be honest, because that just stuck with me. I said, how can this person think there are 300 Bulgari stores in the whole of the New York City, in the whole of the United States? I mean, they know for a fact there's only one in New York because they went shopping there over the weekend. But how can they make that, how can they make that assumption? So n the point is, when you network, network well, network cleverly. In fact, try to talk around things you know well and try to make them like you before you go into more uh, complicated topics. Coming back to the, the GMAT score, if your GMAT score tends to be weak, 
but your GPA tends to be high and you have to say a GPA in um, something like an engineering subject or math or physics then obviously they know you're quantitative and they probably think you've had a bad day right if your GPA is high in a quantitative field your GMAT is high in a quantitative skill uh, field but your qualitative score on your GMAT is low that also plays into the stereotype whereby you know they say engineers are good at math but they're bad at communication so don't just look at the quantitative side it's the whole package and that's the point I'm trying to stress look at the portrait your package is painting and, and ask yourself is it painting the portrait you want is it playing into your stereotype if so how do you fix that in networking is it playing against your stereotype whereby you're an engineer and expected to do well in the, in the GMAT on the quantitative side but you haven't done well? How do you, you know, make up for that in your networking? My final words of advice is do not be too obsessed about GMAT. Um, you know, don't be one of those people who thinks that if they get the right scores, the right sort of ticks, just tick it off, you'll be fine. My advice is to go out there, meet people, explain your case, talk well, and you'll see if you can have a shot. You know, reading blogs and trying to figure out if you have a shot is a little bit like reading a book on driving for a year to figure out if you can drive. You only know if you can drive if you get behind the wheel of a car. You know, obviously don't kill yourself. Meet a few um, minor little, you know, fender benders and learn. Same thing with networking. Start early. You will make a mistake a few times with it. Okay, if you start early, you can move on to other networking sessions. In fact, start networking sessions with firms that you specifically not so interested with joining. Right? So if you want to go after McKinsey, Bain, BCG, network with, say, Deloitte or whatever it is, LEK or whatever it is. I'm not saying they're bad firms. This is just an example of firms that you, you know, choosing to join versus those you're not so interested in joining. If you network with firms you're not interested in joining, you gain confidence, you learn how to network, but if it doesn't work, so what? You've met your fender benders you know, in the unimportant parts so that when you actually get to the main firms you're networking, you've learned how to network. That would be my, my advice. If you have any questions, I would recommend you write to us. We will be covering all questions going forward via podcast. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. We're trying to make it as you know specific, as detailed, as insightful as possible and try to stay away from the more generic topics. So we will aim to put up a podcast roughly every second or third day but you know if i if i do have time in my travels i'll try to put it up at least once a day so good luck with your applications and i hope that you write in to let me know how it goes take care bye bye